reading for tonight is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, 25 to 33. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The word of the Lord. I would love to know how you responded to that text. I felt resistance might be a nice way of putting it. I read it to Jim, my husband, to see if he might have any helpful thoughts about it. And when I was done reading, he made a sound that mimicked vomiting, (laughs) which wasn't exactly what I was looking for. He said this passage used to terrify him because it was like confirmation. There was no way he was ever going to make it to the place he believed he was supposed to go. He wasn't good enough or strong enough and would burn in hell. My feeling at this point in my life, on the surface anyway, was resistant, but a little nonchalant. Like, okay, that's okay. I can't be your disciple if I don't hate my children and give up on my possessions. I guess I won't be then. No problem. I mean, I 100% don't believe material possessions are worthy things that we should cling to, but I'm pretty clear that I'm not going to give them all up. Some commentators say Jesus is trying to thin the crowd here with these words, like weed out the unworthy. And if that's the case, I guess I'd be out. I mean, I I really can get on board with the idea that giving up all our possessions would be good. Not that I could do it. But for sure, I am not going to even try to hate my kids. So I can follow Jesus. I don't even think that's, like, scientifically possible. My children came from this protected place in my womb. They grew by ingesting the nutrients in my body. Human babies can't live without someone caring for them. Of course, eventually they can, and you let them, but hate them? Miles and Olivia? I don't even care if hate is hyperbole here. And Jesus just means you shouldn't let relationships with your children get in the way of your relationship with him. I mean... What does that mean? And whatever it means, I think I resist. This is where I sort of started to realize, oh, I'm not nonchalant about this. It bothers me. 
Jesus didn't have any babies. Scientists know now that cells from a fetus cross the placenta and enter the mother's body, where they often become part of her tissues, actually. Scientists call it a cellular invasion. Mothers carry unique genetic material from their children in their bodies for the rest of their lives, creating what biologists call a microchimera. That's a term derived from the chimera of Greek mythology, a fire-breathing creature that was part lion, part goat, and part dragon. So I'm just saying, maybe take care what you ask of the fire-breathing chimera, <laughs> someone who carried a fetus in their body. Even if I want to distance myself from the children, which I don't, I can't. They're literally part of me. And in addition to the exchange between mother and fetus, there's also the possibility that cells from an older sibling residing in the mother may find their way back across the placenta to a younger sibling during their gestation. So we are all profoundly interconnected. There's really no separating yourself. And it's just possible that some of the most foundational interpreters of the Christian faith, like the church fathers who didn't have wives or wombs or children, might not have been able to see from this point of view, clearly not the only point of view, but one worth considering. I believe Jesus calls us away from forming bonds over against other people, other families, but it's not always all rivalry and envy with moms and dads and children and husbands and wives. I think there's often, not always, but often a lot of love there that you could build on, expand. Most commentators agree that Jesus didn't really mean you should hate your family. He just means that a disciple needs to extract him or herself from the normal constraints a family imposes, something like that. Like, don't put your family before God. It could seem sensible. But the God Jesus reveals doesn't seem like that sort of Lord that needs to be in first place. Some overlord to whom you must pledge your allegiance above all others. That seems like the ways of the false gods that Jesus means to free us from. The God we come to glimpse through Jesus isn't this supreme being all worried about remaining supreme, requiring all the subjects to give all their hearts to God. To the contrary, the God Jesus reveals seemed to be all about expanding our hearts, our capacity for love, so we can give it away freely, all around, everywhere, indiscriminately. And I think the idea that a true disciple must be detached from family, I don't think it's born great fruit. I think that way of reading might have encouraged generations of Christian men to disentangle themselves from the normal restraints imposed by family commitments and ties. Their faith required them to give up a lot in order to pursue rigorous 
rigorous discipleship to Christ, they had to be willing to leave their homes and their children and the meals and the laundry and the cleaning to their wives. I think that notion of discipleship might have contributed to the not uncommon situation in the past where men served God and women served men. I don't think that was a great direction to veer off in. Some commentators say Jesus is trying to thin the crowd here, weed out the unworthy. But that just doesn't seem like Jesus. I mean, in the story immediately preceding this passage, Jesus talks all about someone who gave a dinner party and invited everyone, everyone, out on the roads and lanes, people who wouldn't normally get invited to dinners, people who would have been considered unworthy. With Jesus, there's so often this sense of this enormous opening up. So has he changed his mind about this huge open invitation and now he's trying to drive people away? It doesn't seem like him. I mean, of course the love we're created out of and created for extends far outside some clannish warmth of the family. But I don't think Jesus would mean to urge his followers away from our admittedly often mundane and not always exciting, but utterly concrete, daily, messy, difficult, beautiful, intimate relationships where there's no place to hide your naked self in favor of some more abstract notion of godly love or spiritual pursuit. I don't think following Jesus looks like some pious pursuit of the individual. It has to do with relationship to other people. It seems like that's what God is working to transform, our earthly loves. Not forbid them, but transform them. So, I found it a bit hard to figure out what he's talking about here. It could be a cultural thing, but I mean, I do understand speaking in hyperbole. I'm no stranger to that. But if Jesus had tempered his language just a little bit here, maybe he could have kept the church from going down this path that might lead to hair shirts and self-flagellation. So yeah, when I read this text, I knew I was going to have a hard time with it. And Jim wasn't a lot of help. So I called my favorite exegete, John Linton, who often helps me with a text. And he, he said he thought Jesus was trying to get us to see something about ourselves here, something we're doing. Not trying to get us to hate our family. It's, it's not like he, wants to, he doesn't want to destroy our families and hurt us. He wants to heal us. But in this process, the dysfunction of family is going to come out. Our love is often a grasping, possessing sort of love, and Jesus wants to free us to non-acquisitive love, free us from a grasping sort of life, from fearful desire. Sometimes we call something life that's really more death-like, like maybe we keep trying to get life by, I mean, I don't think, we have a very material, possession-oriented congregation, but we might try to get life or energy by defining ourselves over against baddies like lovers of fossil fuels and haters of diversity and 
patriarchal evangelicals, maybe. And being locked up against them, whoever them are, is not life-giving. It's really more death-dealing. It's not creative life, life and more life and love and mercy. It takes it away. That was helpful. And then I called Miles, my son, to see what his response to the passage might be because he doesn't have any evangelical background, and I like his point of view. He said, give me a second to read the text. And then he called me back in like three minutes. And he said, he heard it like, unless you have suffered, you won't be able to see the truth that Jesus is trying to show you. And the hating your family thing wasn't something supposedly virtuous that you were supposed to aspire to. It was part of the suffering. I thought, yeah, wow, why didn't I see that? It was sort of the same direction that Lent was going. And maybe Miles could see it so quickly, I thought, because he was around for some of the mayhem and the pain that my mom's dementia unleashed in my family. My dad and mom yelling at each other to get the hell out of here and I'm going to kill you. Nice stuff like that. And my sister confessing after particularly difficult encounters that she felt like she hated my mom. So maybe it's because Miles was around all that, or maybe it's just that he has a good contemplative practice. But anyway, Miles heard it like if you haven't suffered, if you haven't experienced the deeply painful brokenness, darkness, loss in places you thought were safe, havens of comfort, maybe you won't quite be able to see what Jesus is trying to show you. Hatred for... Hatred amongst people we love most is painful. It's a terrible feeling. If you don't know what it's like to know hate in the place you most expect to feel love, if you haven't ever felt that, if you haven't suffered, maybe Jesus doesn't really have anything for you. Jesus is saying, if you don't know that sort of brokenness, you can't follow me because I'm going right through the depth of that. Jesus' path includes suffering. So following him, you will encounter it. And the thing is, if you haven't suffered yet, you will. At the very least, someone you love will die. Well, actually, at the very least, you'll die. You can't actually keep grasping love and life. It won't work. So live an awareness of impermanence. Live into this non-possessing love. I think it was about here that I realized that my initial reaction, that pretense of nonchalance to the text, like, okay, no problem, I guess I won't follow you then, wasn't really my, it wasn't me being entirely honest. Because I think I have glimpsed here and there where Jesus is trying to lead us. And I believe it is a transformational, a beautiful, a redemptive direction. I believe it's good news of great joy for all people, and I want to hear that and be a part of it and spread it around. Okay, so then Linton sent me a text to James Allison's sermon on this text. And Allison, everyone back then, the people Jesus was talking to, they would have understood Jesus as saying, with the whole hate your family thing, that he was saying, my followers are going to be like Levites. Well, I didn't even think of Levites. Like the new Levites. The Levites were this sort of 
temple, gatekeepers at the time, descended from the tribe of Levites, who were known for distancing themselves from their families. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses blesses Levi, saying, he said of his father and mother, I regard you not. So Jesus was saying his disciples would be sort of replacing these temple functionaries. His disciples would be replacing these Levites in a way that was going to be different. It wouldn't be about just distancing themselves from their families, but more, he says, from life itself, their own being. Which made me think, wow, so maybe that whole trajectory of a true disciple of Christ can't have a partner or children was a sort of misunderstanding, a misread. And maybe all that suppressing of the desire for intimate human connection in order to follow Jesus was never necessary. Allison's read is more like the old gatekeepers loosened their ties to family, a definite source of status in the day. But Jesus is like, following me, you'll be like loosening your ties to the things you think give you your own being, your sense of self, your own life. Following him would involve giving up anything you try to hold on to that gives you an advantage over other people. Because that's what he does. That's where he goes. Gives up his reputation, his status, gives up his life, his defenses, any sort of strength that might be attributed to him as the incarnate God. He becomes utterly disarmed, completely weaponless in order to reveal God's love, this totally nonviolent, non-acquisitive love. Allison says, any leverage that gives you being now, that gives you an advantage, is going to get in the way of your being weak enough to follow Jesus, to lay down your weapons, to be disarmed. The story of Jesus is about a God coming to disarm us, by being utterly weaponless, absolutely vulnerable. God doesn't come in power to save us, according to the Christian narrative, but in weakness. And you know, I can believe that that could work. Because as far as I can tell, that is what love is like. It's something that slowly helps you to realize that you have no need to protect yourself. You don't have to hide who you are. You can be honest about everything. Allison says following Jesus is the long, slow process of being disarmed. And in the light of God's radiant love, we can be at peace with ourselves and with each other. I believe that love could change the world, is changing it. Mm -hmm.